Again, appreciate you guys being here. Thanks for coming out tonight. And we're studying the book of James. I, I had a um, dead tree in my front yard that had to be removed and cut down. And after it was cut down, had to have the stump ground out and removed. And then there was a just kind of like a heap of of dirt there in the middle, right in the middle of our front yard. So I went and had to kind of grade that down, get some seed and some fertilizer and all that and get it and then put the the hay on top of it, uh, straw on top of it, make sure it was watered. So we had a sprinkler that we put out there. And as I put that sprinkler out there and was letting it water it, it was getting jammed up. And I wasn't sure why it was jammed up when I first put it out there. It was because there was a block in the hose, okay? And so I'm sitting there, and this is the brilliance of, of my mind, like with the sprinkler, like right up by my face. And I'm like, what is going on with this thing that it's like that? And so long story short, as I'm messing around with it and fidgeting it right by my face, this thing just went right in my face. All of it was spraying all over the place. And I'm like, what in the world? Well, here there was like a clog in it that as I was messing with it, it got dislodged. And all of the water just came, just destroying my face all at one time. You ever had something like that happen? Maybe not with like that exact scenario, but where you've had something like that take place, that's what it feels like a little bit with the book of James, okay? It feels like that a little bit with the book of James because we're used to a lot of instruction, but not always a lot of practical living, right? We're used to a lot of knowledge and filling our heads with things and sometimes not being slapped in the face with it as it relates to what we're supposed to do now. And so I heard from a lot of you, which I appreciate it, from last week, and not saying it that way, what I heard from a number of you, though, was that you left feeling like, man, like that, that kind of really hit me. And that was something that I really, you know, needed to hear and needed to change some of my perspective on some things I was dealing with. A lot of you shared that with me, and I think you're going to feel the same way hopefully again tonight. As I said at the beginning of our study, like, buckle up, here we go. Uh, this is, again, um, an area tonight that we're looking at in James chapter 1 that continues very practical teaching on the part of James that I think, again, we could have this feeling of like, wow, like that was just right in my face. And so I want to start off by telling you my desire is this comes across in a gracious manner, okay? It's not my intent for us to feel like, wow, I feel beat up tonight. I mean, as I'm reading through this text and I'm looking at the things that we're going to be looking at, like, this is conviction in my own heart, my own life for me personally. Um, This is something that God, like, is really you know, reminding me of, and I hope he reminds all of us of tonight. So um, again, you know, you might want to like pull the, pull the hose a little bit away uh, as it's going to start coming out because it, it just expect it, okay, because this is what James does. We talked about last week in the introduction to James that James is the half-brother of Jesus, the author here, the half-brother of Jesus, and there's a lot of reasons for that that you can listen to the first week's message to get all that backdrop, uh, but it's also written between the years 45 and 50 AD, so it is the earliest current earliest book of the Bible that we have. Uh, It predates even Paul's epistles. We talked about that last week. So this was important because this was foundational, a foundational letter in the very early stages of the church. And James tells the recipients are those Jews, the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, known as the diaspora, and they're scattered. And they were scattered mostly because of persecution, because of the severity of the persecution, because they were being pushed out and pushed away. And so they're scattered abroad. And so they would have been familiar already with trials that we talked 
talked about last week. If you missed the message, you can access that through our website. If you go into the website and go under sermons, uh, there's a spot there that will say uh, men's ministry. And we'll take you to the Spotify account. Or if you are part of Church Center, which if you have that Church Center app and you go to sermons, there's actually a link right there for men's ministry. It says James 1. So if you want to get caught up, you can listen to it there. Those, those sermons are available. Um, but last week we talked about God's instruction to us through James that when we are enduring trials, that those trials that come our way are for a purpose. God has a purpose and a plan in the midst of the trials that we're enduring. God has a reason for what he's doing. And we always don't see that up front, but it's true. There's a purpose and a plan that God has in the midst of trials, and it's for the perfecting of our faith. It's to bring us to a point of completion. And God is always working, and God's always faithful. He's with us in the midst of those trials, and he desires us to honor him. Now today, there's a slight transition from verse 12 to verse 13, where he is finished talking about trials that God utilizes, allows, and intends for the completion of our faith to now temptations, which is the same Greek word that's used for trials, but it's the verb form of that word. If you pick up in verse 13 when it says, let no man say when he is tempted. The word that's used there for when he is tempted, that phrase, it's the verb form of the same word that was used in verses 1 through 12 of trials. But the context and usage of the word tempted here is a much different context, but also a much different usage. The usage of the word that you're going to see tonight of tempted that's going to be in the context of the verses we're looking at, that brings with it this idea, the connotation here is the testing of our faith, but not the testing of our faith like previously mentioned for the purpose of completion, but it's a testing of our faith uh, intended at this point in time in an evil sense to maliciously or craftily test us. It's to bring us to a point where we are we are maliciously or craftily trying to be tested so that we are enticed to sin, to solicit to sin, to tempt, to use the temptations of the devil, etc. So there's a very big difference in the, in the context of how this term is being utilized in its verb usage here, beginning in verse 13, then the, the, the testing that God utilizes for our completion or our building up. So last week, if you will, you can picture it, you know, when you're, if you have kids or you've ever seen kids use building blocks, uh, I remember when, when my kids were real little, we would go to the doctor's office and they would take the building blocks, you know, those cardboard blocks or whatever in the waiting room of the doctor's offices when you used to be able to play with toys in the doctor's offices before everything had to be cleaned and like everything else. But they would take those big blocks and they would build up like a big wall and then they would love to go up it and just destroy it, right? So the way I want you to understand this is verses 1 through 12, the testing that is for the purpose of God building our faith, and the verse 13 and following of the usage of the word here is for the absolute desire to destroy that faith. Does that make sense? There's two different usages here and two different meanings that can be associated with it. Last week, for our completion, for our edification, for our building up. This week, it's for the destruction, for the temptation to sin, to destroy whatever it is that we should be going after that's honoring to God. And so that's the context of the, the verses we're going to look at, but also the meaning of the word that really is going to be at the focal point tonight of what we're talking about. So let's look at James chapter 1, pick up in verse 13. We're just going to do 13 to 18 tonight. 
James is continuing. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Let me stop there for a second. How many of you have ever been tempted to sin before? Put your hands up. And again, I did this last week. Look around, man. Everybody's hands should be up. Okay, so when James begins here and says, let no one say when he is tempted, the very fact that every one of us this hits, because we've all been tempted, should cause all of us to perk up, open our ears, open our eyes, open our minds, and say, okay, I need whatever's about to follow here. Okay, let no one say when he is tempted. The reality is temptation will come. And the reality is every one of us have already faced that and will continue to face that. And so we have to like open our ears here. We should pay attention because this is what we need to hear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death." Do not be deceived, my bro beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This whole process of temptation and sin that we're going to look at tonight is so different than the process of sanctification and edification and building up that trials do in our lives that are, are, in, that are honoring God in the midst of those trials. So all that we looked at in verses 1 through 12 and the establishing of our faith, and we talked about last week in the midst of trials, it doesn't create faith for us. It reveals where our faith is. Remember we talked about that last week. When many ways, our response to temptation or participation or lack thereof in it is also a revealer of where our faith is, of how we're walking and how we're living or not living for the Lord. And so there's a few things I want to just point out tonight as we look at the passage. Um, first, God is not to blame for our temptations. God is not to blame for our temptations. Have you ever watched, I don't know, a football game where your team loses, and after watching the game, one of the stars did not play like they should have played? Okay, and they're being interviewed after the game and they're at the, you know, at the podium and the, uh, the reporters are asking all kinds of questions and they got destroyed and they're discouraged and that star player did not play up to his potential. And as he's asked, hey, what's the reason that the struggle is happening? What's the reason things aren't going right? And you hear the person up there and, and what typically people do is they, they place blame on someone. Okay, the, the quarterback or the star player that gets up there and says, yeah, I, I have to wear this myself. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I, the guilt and blame lands with me. I'm the one responsible. When, when you hear that, whether that is a player you like or not or a team you root for or not, and you hear that, something about that resonates, doesn't it? To like, you know what, I want to cheer for that guy because he's taking ownership. You know what I'm talking about? When someone makes a mistake you don't want the mistake to be made. You don't want that. But when there's ownership of that mistake, a sense of almost respect comes with it. Like, good for you that you're, you're owning up to what you've done wrong. If you own a business, if you run a business, if you have employees, and someone makes a mistake, sure, you're not happy about the mistake. And maybe the mistake was significant enough that there's not a second chance. But if you can own up to that, if someone owns up to it, there's a respectable thing when they can say, you know what, I'm the one to blame. I did that. We teach that with our kids. If the kids do something that they're not supposed to do and we go up to them and say, hey, listen, you need to tell us, were you lying about this? 
And you get the feeling as they're looking at you, they're like, does he know or not know? Like, and I always tell my kids, better to come clean before I find out than after I find out. I always tell them that. And so, you know, it's just something respectable about taking ownership for the mistake that you've done. But how about when that star player gets up there and like, yeah, it's the coach's fault. It's my offensive line's fault. It's the referee's fault. It's the turf. It's the weather. It's the ball. It's whatever. And, and there's blame being shifted on everybody else other than the one who really should take ownership. Something about that when you hear that makes me like, man, I hope that guy never throws another touchdown as long as he plays. Like, there's like something that comes with it that we don't like that, right? We want truth. We want ownership. We want people to man up about that. Uh, not deflection. But I get the feeling in the church and with these Jews that were scattered, and I believe this is true even today, Christians... Followers of Christ, when it comes to temptation and sin, are very quick to deflect ownership of the reason for it on many other things or people than ourselves. And it sounds like there were those within the church that were even blaming God for some of these temptations or these enticements. Because James begins in verse 13 by saying, each, or he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why would he say that? I would venture to believe it's because there were some who were saying this. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, tempt, I'm tempted by God. Have you ever been in a position where you felt like, man, like, this is God's fault. This is God's fault. That's what was going on here. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, he's being tempted by God. Because look at what he reveals about God. He says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. That's a very important thing, and, and kind of file that away, because we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But God is not to blame for our temptations. That's not who our God is. That's who, that who he's ever been, and that's not who he ever will be. God does not tempt others to evil, and he himself is not tempted by evil, because God, in his own character and nature, is completely holy. He is completely set apart from all that is evil. And that's a whole other message in and of itself. But I think it's important for us to get this up front. And this is what James says. When you are tempted, you're not being tempted by God because God doesn't tempt anyone with evil, nor is he tempted by evil. That's important to understand. Secondly, the origin of our temptation rests with us. This is one that can be hard. But the reality of the origin of our temptation to sin, it rests on us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that sin originated uh, as far as the temptation to sin originated within us. But here, he says in this passage, but each person, verse 14, is tempted when? When he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. His own desire. Now, don't miss the individual nature of what he's saying here. Look at what he says, again, at the words that he uses. Each person, so there's a personal responsibility here. It's an individual that he's talking about. Each person, it encompasses all of us, but it's an individual. Each person is drawn away by his own desire, the passage says. Not your neighbor's desire, not my neighbor's desire, not my family's desire, not, uh, you know, this person, by his own desire. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out about this that I think we can miss. First, when he says he's lured and enticed, very interesting that those words that are used there are the same words that are used when it comes to an understanding of setting out bait, like if you're hunting or fishing. You know how you would set out bait because you're trying to attract 
an animal or trying to attract fish, you set out bait for that. Um, it holds with it this connotation of setting out bait in a hopes of drawing you out to it. When it says he's lured away and enticed. The same thing like when you, when you go fishing and you put your bait on the hook and you throw it in the water. And, and you're hoping it, it, it attracts, right, fish. And fish see it and they think, ooh, what do fish think? I don't know what they think, but they're probably thinking that's food and I want it, right? And so it's, it's luring them in. It's something that's attracted to them. And so that's the, the words that are used here. It's in that connotation of a, a bait and switch. It's of a baiting out your prey to come after that. When you think about that, that's, that's a heavy thing right there. That's a serious thing. You know, the Bible in 1 Peter says that your, your adversary, the devil, walks about how? As a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Guys, when we break this down all the way to, to the root here, temptation to sin and the luring and enticing to sin is the same word choice that's used here of luring and enticing as though you are the hunted one. And you're being enticed. And you're being lured out. Something that maybe presents itself as, as attractive as good, as beneficial, but ultimately leads to destruction. That's what this, this represents here. I think we're all familiar with that luring and enticing. In a good way. You know, we, I told you guys last week that we were starting this 222 outreach thing. And today, as kids were leaving school, I was standing at one of the, like the points of, of um, pass-through to direct kids to where the thing was going on. And we had a big grill out there and, and hot dogs and hamburgers cooking. And you know how like on a nice day, especially when it's breezy and hamburgers are being cooked on the grill, you could smell that the grill's cooking burgers. And it smells really good, especially if you're hungry. And so like kids, it was almost like, you know, follow the smell of their nose. And like they were just like walking and they were all looking. And you can see smoke up from the grill the smell of the burgers, and then kids were walking around with these big hamburgers on their plates and stuff like that. And so one kid's coming, he's walking pretty quick, and he sees me and says, hey, how you doing, man? He goes, I'll be honest with you, man, I'm just here for that food, is what he said. He went over to the grill to get food. I'm like, great, yeah, you're welcome to come. And he came, and that reason he was there that today was because of the food. But we put the grill out there, and we're cooking because our hope is that that attracts kids, students coming out of school, they're hungry. And, they, and they're attracted to that. And so we utilize that as an opportunity to feed them, but also an opportunity to engage with them and have a relationship with them and share the gospel with them. And it works. But that's what I want you to think about when it comes to this luring and enticing. And think about sin, guys. And think about what it is, whatever it may be in your own life that you are drawn away by or lured by. Most of the time when it comes to sin, it's something that we think we need. It's something at that time looks very attractive to us. It's something that we think is going to provide a benefit to us. It's something that we're thinking on and thinking on and thinking on. And we're enticed by it. And it draws us out. And so this is what James says here. James says in this passage, each one, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lord and enticed by his own desire. The origin of that temptation rests within us by our own desires. That temptation originates, it says, he is tempted when? 
when he's enticed by his own desire, that what is in our mind and in our heart, that which we're allowing to fill our mind and heart that we're, we're thinking on and we're contemplating, and then that leads to this temptation from within, the own desire that we have, and it draws or lures us out. And then he says, when desire conceives, it brings forth sin. We're tempted. We're lured out. We're drawn out. And I think this is something we have to understand. Temptation to sin is not the sin, okay? Temptation is not the sin. In, in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into wilderness to be tempted by the devil, okay? So Jesus went up into the mountain to, with, to, to, to be up there, and he was going to be up there for 40 days, and he's going to be tempted by the devil. But Christ would not give in to that temptation, and what's interesting is that the devil tried to utilize the same tactics on Jesus that he tried to utilize and was successful at in utilizing in the garden with Adam and Eve and also the same tactics that he try, tactics he tries to use even today with us. In the garden in Genesis chapter 3, what does the devil do? The devil distorts the word of God, distorts the promises of God, distorts the authority of God, and Adam and Eve sin. In the, in the wilderness, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, what does the devil do? He tries to distort the word of God, and he tries to lure Christ with what he knew he would have been desiring at that time. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was hungry, the passage says. And what does the devil tempt him with? He tries to tempt him with bread. Make these stones bread. Jesus knew of the impending wrath of God that would be on his shoulders. And what does the devil tempt him with? A, a free pass out of that. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. They can be yours if you'll bow down to me. You can have authority over all of this. He gave him basically a way out. Cast yourself down. The, the angels will bury you up. All of these things that the devil was trying to lure him with would have been things that in the devil's mind, Jesus would have been very interested in. But Jesus combats the devil with scripture. He walks in the spirit. Galatians tells us if we walk in the spirit, we'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. But the origin of our temptation rests within us as our desire lures and entices us away. And when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth to death. Guys, I want you to think about for a moment those temptations that entice us, that lure us or seek to bring us out. And think of how often we think we're getting one thing, but the end is destruction. Think of that. How many times that we are enticed or tempted and in our mind, we've played it up. I need that. I want that. That will be beneficial to me. That will help me. And then the feeling of regret, despair, conviction that follows when we realize it does not give what I thought it would give or promise what I thought it would promise. He says when it fully gives birth, it gives birth to death. It brings forth death. Number three, I think, is important as far as an observation here. Not only is God not to blame, and the origin of temptation rests with us with the desires of our, our sinful desires, but also, number three, God is good in the giver of good things. Verses 16 and 17, I think, is important. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here's something interesting. I find it interesting that James tells these believers, do not be deceived about God. Do not be deceived about what God does and what God does not do. 
Don't be deceived. And I find it interesting because, again, if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you were to read what Satan's tactics were with Adam and Eve, it was to deceive them. It was to offer deception. It was to deceive. It was take, to take what, what God, who is perfect and good and right and holy and all that he does, and almost twist what God says as to being something negative and bad for them. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent says to Eve, has God said you cannot eat of all the trees of the garden? You know how he worded that? Not, so God said you can eat of all these trees except for the one, huh? That's great. No, what did he say? Did God really say you can't eat of all the trees? There's an immediate twisting here, right? There's an immediate emphasis on what God tells you you can't have. And it puts God as not someone who is the giver of good things, but the withholder of good things. He says you can't eat of that tree. Did God really say you couldn't eat it? Look how good that is. And you see what it does with God in the perspective of God? It turns God from being the giver of what is good to being the withholder of what is good. Isn't that the testimony a lot of people want to say even about Christianity and about following Christ today? Christians can have no fun. Christianity is a set of rules. God wants to keep you from doing anything that you want to do. It puts God in this position of the withholder of good rather than the giver of what is good. It's a deception. And then he says, she sa- Eve says, no, we can eat of all the trees in the garden except for the one. And, and what does he say about God? He says, God knows that on the day that you eat it, you'll be like him. And it almost puts God in a position of vulnerability and fear of what would take place if they would eat of that tree. Do you see the deception that is there? God's desire for them was fellowship and community and life. And he said, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Sin will cause this death. It will take place and this is what will follow. What does Satan do? Satan says, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree, not because he's withholding or wanting to withhold some evil that's coming your way if you eat it. Instead, he's saying, God doesn't want you to eat that tree because he doesn't want you to have this great thing. He doesn't want you to be like him. It's a deception. And, and so when James says, do not be deceived, I immediately thought of Genesis chapter 3 because that is what Satan desires to do, is deceive and put God in a light that he was never intended to be put in. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know what James tells them here? God is good, and he is the giver of good things. And so we have to get this. Guys, listen, we do not blame God for evil. We will not blame God for evil or temptation to sin because that is not of God or from God. God cannot do that. And he says, don't be deceived about this because God is the giver of what is good. God is the giver of what is life. And there's no shadow of changing with God. He will not change. That will always be true. Now again, you could ask the question, why would he have to tell, tell them this? I believe he had to tell them this because there were those that were believing this. He says, my brothers, don't be deceived. This is who God is. This is who the Father is. And there's no variation or shadow due to change. He's unchanging. And it's important for us to understand this. He's bringing a believer to a clear recognition here. One, God is not responsible for temptation to sin. He's not the originator of our temptations to sin. Temptation does originate within, with our own sinful desires that we have to be real about, and they are what draws us in and draws us out. On the other hand, God is good, and he's the giver of good things. So I think we have to have this proper perspective, proper perspective of who God is 
of who we are and who our enemy is, of what God does, of what our own desires do, and what our enemy desires to do. And sometimes that can get very cloudy in our minds when we're in the midst of temptation. We can begin to think that this is God's doing. And it's not. It's not. There's a huge separation there. Number four, God's desire is that we are set apart. Verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will he brought us forth. Literally what James is saying here is that God is the one who has made us alive. He's regenerated us. He's brought us forth. He has made us his. We are a new creation and creature in Christ. It's of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. That whole idea of bringing us forth, it, it speaks of regeneration. It speaks of life that is now ours through Christ, through the word of truth. And he says here, it's God, as he talks about God as the giver of good things. God is the one who does not do evil. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone to evil. Don't be deceived about who God is. And he's, he, then he says, he reminds him here, listen, it is God who brought us forth by the word of truth according to his own will. Timothy tells us that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace that was given to us in Christ before the world began. We have been brought forth or regenerated, made alive by God for God. And so he wants to understand who it is that God is and God's desire for us to be set apart. He says at the end of this that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We should be those that are demonstrating the newness of life that we have in Christ, set apart from what is evil, sinful, and destructive, and death, and living as those that have been made alive, representing rightly the one who has saved us. And so when we look at this area of temptation and sin, there's a lot of things that we have to understand and we have to, we have to really focus in on. So let me just focus in on four points of application before I let you guys discuss some questions at your tables. Point of application number one, you and I as men have to be real about the temptations that are present in our lives. We have to be real about the temptations that are present in our lives. It would be a lie. If someone says, hey, is there any area that sometimes you are tempted in? No, not at all. Chances are that's a lie. And I don't always, and naturally everybody goes to, when they think of temptation for men, they go to sexual temptation. My bet is the majority of men in this room at some point struggle with sexual temptation. Lust, sinful desires, it relates to sexual sin. Many of you in this room I know are struggling with pornography. I mean, we did a, we did a, a survey a number of years ago and it was overwhelming, the amount of men that would say, yeah, I am consistently struggling with either looking at pornography, tempted to look at pornography, tempted as it relates to women in general, and that lust. And so I know, I think, I know naturally we think that way. But temptation to sin goes far beyond just sexual sin. Pride. Temptation because of pride and ego. Making ourselves out to be great. The temptation as it relates to wealth and money and success. That's a sin. When we begin to elevate that above the Lord, when we are greedy for, for greedy gain and for wealth, it could be sinful. When it comes to our language and the choice of, of our language and relationships with others with our words, when it comes to our for, for, um, for failure to forgive 
and to restore and be in right relationship with other believers because of what it will make us look like. There are so many temptations that are prevalent out there. We talk about it with youth all the time, about peer pressures. Pressures are there for adults just as they are for youth. Pressures to conform, to fit in, to call what is evil good and what is good evil. Pressure to remain silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the temptation to just stay silent rather than proclaim openly the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are all areas of sin. And so when we think about temptation, even though we sometimes pigeonhole it into just sexual temptation, it goes far beyond that. So we have to be real about the temptations that are present in our lives. When we do marriage counseling here at the church and we meet with a couple, we start off by asking both, the, both spouses, husband and wife, what are the areas of your marriage that you feel you need to work on? What are the areas that you feel you need to work on? And so normally we'll start, you know, say we start with the husband, tell us what those areas are. And I'll say, yeah, is that everything? And he'll be like, yep, that's everything. Are you sure? Yeah, I can't think of anything else. And then I get to the wife, and it's just like, like we're writing, like writing, writing. And then I'll ask afterwards, do you agree with this? And he'll be like, yeah, I agree with those things. <laughs> he wasn't going to bring them up, but he agrees with them when she brings them up. Because our tendency as men, if we're honest, is to keep all that in. It's to, it's to only let be known what really needs to be known and not anything else. Guys, when it comes to temptation, we have to be real. We're talking about the Lord's table, communion this Sunday as we go through 1 Corinthians. And one of the challenges Paul gives to the believers in Corinth is that they would examine themselves before they would partake in communion. They would examine themselves. When it comes to this area of temptation, the enticement to sin, we really need to be honest and real about this and examine ourselves and I would ask you the question, are you in any way, shape, or form premeditating your sin? And what I mean by premeditating is, is are you making a way for your sin to take place? Are you paving the pathway so that whatever it is you want to go after, you can go after it and get away with it? Because most of the time when it comes to sin, we're pretty good at premeditating it, making a way for it to happen in our lives. And we really need to be real about that. And so sometimes we can be real quick to just be hush-hush and cover that up. Number two, have a plan to address temptation now. Have a plan to address temptation now. Plan now so that when that happens, you have a plan in place for what needs to take place. That's what needs to happen in our lives. Have a plan to address temptation. Now, I immediately think of Joseph when Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife. And Joseph is there and she and Joseph are all alone in the palace. She throws herself at Joseph. She's like, let's go. Come on, big man. Like, be with me. And he leaves his coat and jets out. He just runs. Now, I don't know if Joseph already purposed in his heart before that. If this ever happens, here's what I'm going to do. If she comes on to me and no one's around, I'm just running. I'm leaving. I'm getting out of there. I have no idea. That's what he did. He ran. But you know, something needs to happen where you have a plan in place because you know temptation is going to be there. You know your enemy roars about like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. You know that it's present. You know it's there. You know that the word of God tells you, put on the full armor of God because the fiery darts of the evil one are coming. We know that. And so it's one thing to be real. It's another thing to have a plan to address it. 
We need to know what we need to know. We need to do what we need to do. I had a, a conversation kind of in a counseling session with a, a man that was struggling with pornography on the internet and his computer. And, and that was his source, was his computer. He was going to his computer, his laptop, to look at pornography. And he came in. He's like, yeah, I really want to get past this. I, I, I want to deal with this. And I said, well, how are you, how are you accessing pornography? And he says, through my laptop computer. He's like, I go upstairs. He said, and, you know, even if the family's home and they're downstairs, I'll go upstairs and I'll look at pornography upstairs because no one's up there. And so I just said to him, I said, well, a very, you know, practical first thing you need to do is do not allow yourself to have access to that computer in any way, shape, or form in a private area. I said, put it at the, you know, dining room table or put it on the counter there because chances are whatever you do in private, you're not doing in front of your family in the living room, right? That's not going to happen. I said, so put it in a public place so that you can't access it. Now, I understand. You can access things other ways. You can put other things into place so that you can access that. But the very first practical step was make a plan so that you don't have access to this in the same manner that gives you the opportunity to give into that temptation. And the person was unwilling to do that. They were unwilling to take even the slightest step to try to address the temptation that they knew would be there even that day when they went home. They refused to do it. And guys, I think it really is time as men that we, we stop saying we want to have victory over sin and temptation, but we're completely unwilling to do anything in order to see that that takes place. We need to have a plan to address temptation that we know is coming. Number three, trust the instruction that the Lord gives, not our own selves. Trust the instruction that the Lord gives and not our own selves. Do not miss again verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. When we are living and just completely engulfed in what we desire, what we want, and how we want to do it, we will sin. We will sin. But Galatians tells us that when we are walking in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Because the desires of the flesh are not the desires that the Spirit gives. And so very simply, the answer is that we need to be walking not in our own will, not in our own desires, but according to His will and according to what He desires. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Each man is lured away and enticed by his own desires. And when desire conceives, it brings forth sin. And so we need to have a plan. We need to be real. We need to trust the instruction the Lord gives. How do you fight temptation? How do you combat temptation? How do we combat sin? By hiding God's word in our heart that we might not sin against God. By walking in the spirit and we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. By resisting the devil and he will flee from us. By reminding ourselves and others, it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. By hiding God's word in our hearts. Trust what God says. And then number four, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. If we went around the room and I asked you, hey, what are you pursuing today? What are you pursuing? I don't know how we would answer that. Some of us might say I'm pursuing success. I'm pursuing wealth. I'm pursuing gain in general. I'm pursuing recognition. I'm pursuing women. I'm pursuing whatever it may be, but would we answer that we have a pursuit of holiness, to be holy as God is holy? And literally what holy means is to be set apart, that we are set apart for God, to be used by God, for God's purpose, for God's glory. Is that where we're truly at? 
So be real about the temptation that's in our lives. Have a plan to address it. Trust the instruction the Lord gives not ourselves and pursue holiness. Look at the passage again. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it conceives gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. If we were to list all of the attributes of God and the attributes of Satan, if we were to list all of the attributes of verses 1 through 12 of what trials trials that reveal our faith and that are for the building of our faith, what that does versus what this word, the same Greek word, but using the verb form of temptation, of what that temptation does, we would see two entirely opposing sides. Our God is good. The enemy is evil. Our God wants our good and to build us up to completion in him. And trials that we talked about last week is one way that he does that. Our enemy desires to steal, kill, and destroy. He desires to tempt us with our own desires that are within. As, as we are sinful by nature, he desires to tempt us, not for our completion or building up, but for our utter destruction. Prime example, someone reminded me of this early today, was with, with Job. Satan's desire in his temptation of Job was to see Job fail, curse God, die as his wife called him to, and to utterly see Job come to a point of destruction. God's intent and purpose in allowing this trial into Job's life was that it would reveal that Job had a faith that was unshakable, and he would trust in God, and he would bless the latter end more than the beginning end of Job. Guys, so often trials and temptations are a revealer of where our faith really is. Where's our faith truly? when it comes to these two areas, trials and now temptations and temptations to sin. A couple questions I want you guys to just take some time at your tables. Number one, what area of sin most serves as a temptation for you? This is a really personal question. And I'm not asking you to give all kinds of detail. I'm not asking you to like really highlight all kinds of details about what temptation to sin does and what those temptations are and how that's revealed and what that looks like. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you just to be honest about, hey, what is the category or area of temptation that is prevalent in your life or tends to be prevalent in your life that if you're honest, you would say, yeah, here it is. This is the area of temptation that oftentimes comes in my life. This is what it is. Number two, how do you respond to that temptation and what is your plan for when it inevitably comes? And if you would say, you know what, I have no plan. Chances are if you have no plan, you would equally say, yeah, when that temptation comes, I have failed. And so if you have no plan, maybe make a commitment tonight that you're going to have one. Maybe even seek out some counsel so that you can have one if there's an area of sin that is gripping you and that you are struggling with and that is so prevalent oftentimes in your life. And number three, how can we as men be proactive in our attack against temptation? What are some ways as men in particular we can be proactive as we seek to battle and fight against temptation that, by the way, this passage makes very clear, every person is going to have to deal with? The passage doesn't say if you are tempted. It says when you are tempted. It's going to happen. So what's the plan of attack? How are we going to address it? How are we going to deal with it? So take some time at your tables. Try to be honest, guys, tonight. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. And try to be honest about some of these things. Thanks.
hope it's been beneficial going through some of these questions at your tables and helpful. Um, I just want to draw your attention back again to, to the text and, and remind us again, when we look at this text and we look at what uh, James really lays out for us here, when he says, well, no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And I think here's the bottom line. If, if when it comes to temptation and sin, when it comes to as believers in Christ wanting to glorify the Lord, we cannot on a day-to-day basis be seeking to glorify ourselves. We cannot on a day-to-day basis be seeking to please or honor or fulfill our own desires. We should be about honoring, fulfilling, and glorifying what God desires for our lives. And really that's what it boils down to. On a day-in and day-out basis, as we get up every single morning, we set our feet on the ground, and we go to walk through this life day by day by day. Who is it that we are living for? Who is it that we are seeking to please? And what is the outcome we're desiring to have that day? Glory to God or fulfillment for self? And really, that's what it boils down to, is glorify God or fulfillment for self. And, And if we're walking in the Spirit, and we're being obedient, and we're putting into practice what God wants, glorifying God will give great fulfillment to self when we're walking in the Spirit, and we're honoring God in the way that we live. But we can get so easily distracted, can't we? We can so easily get distracted and swayed to go to the left, or to the right, or to look at this, or to look at that, and to be completely blinded to the fact of what it leads to is ultimately destruction. And in some ways, as believers in Christ, I think it's willful ignorance, because we know better. We know better. But we willfully choose either to close our eyes or plug our ears, and just desire what we desire, and just go about our day. That's willful ignorance. And in many ways, it's willful choosing of disobedience against what God wants. And so instead, let us remember who God is, what God promises, what God has done, and who we are in him. We are his new creation. We've been made alive through the word of God. And so we should be living in a way that pleases him and is obedient to him. So I hope you guys come back next week. We'll continue on in James and finish this out in chapter 1 and move on from there. If you missed the first message, again, you can access that, give some background to the book, give some backdrop to James and the recipients that are receiving the book, puts things in context to what we started with tonight about temptation. Uh, Same word, entirely different meaning as it's used in verses 13 to 18 as opposed to the trials that we mentioned last week. So get caught up if you missed the first one. Uh, Again, you can access that on our Church Center app or you can do it through the website and we'll direct you to Spotify. But I appreciate you guys being here. Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you again for your word and thank you for the instruction you give us in your word. Thank you for James. Uh, Lord, as others have called it, it's the wisdom book of the New Testament. There's so many practical exhortations and instruction for us. I pray that as men... uh, Uh, We would be honest and real about the temptations in our lives. God, that we would be living in a way that's pleasing to you, that you would help us to resist the devil knowing he'll flee from us, that we would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Uh, Lord, that as Job prayed, we would make a covenant with our eyes not to look at a woman with lust, that we would, Lord, uh, desire to walk in the spirit, not fulfill the desires of the flesh, and that in doing so, we would please you, we would grow in you, and we would proclaim to a watching world that we believe in Christ and that he lives within us. Uh, God, that we would always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, glorifying you. So be with each man here. I pray that you'd give us victory this week and that we would honor you in all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen.